Michael Levitin, and this is episode 16 of The Tell. So at my synagogue when I was a kid, the adults were very hung up on this one rule called Lashon Hara, which is saying bad things about people. So if I tried to expose something someone had done, if I called out one of the adults on something, or I said, son, this kid did this jerk thing, they would shout Lashon Hara at me, and I was supposed to shut up, which I thought was crazy. I thought saying bad things about people seemed clearly a good idea, good for everyone, Um, There were so many positives to it, Uh, you know, that it was cathartic, first of all, to say what you'd gone through. It was often an interesting story, more interesting than things you could make up. People could have shared experience. You know, it was warning people of bad characters. Sometimes a character could be removed from the community if he was doing bad things. Um, Also, if people feared being exposed, maybe they wouldn't do as many bad things. You know, they might be afraid of being found out. So... These were all reasons that I thought it was a good idea. The main thing was that you you couldn't lie. Spreading gossip that was untrue was really bad. That was clearly horrible. And you had to be able to tell if someone's lying, too. You have to be skeptical, you know. But that was the important part of the equation. The rest of it was it seemed like telling stories about people doing bad things was great. I still basically feel that way and find that most people disagree with me. Um, I tell a lot of stories that make people look bad and make myself look bad. And I know people tell stories that make me look bad. I'm sure I'm like the worst date story of (laughs) tons of people or weirdest date story. And I don't blame them for telling their friends. That's fine. I think it can all be worked out with everyone telling their side of the story. I think everyone should tell their side. So the stories this episode are from Jeremy O'Harris and Tyler Weatherell. And they expose some bad behavior. uh, and And there are some real world consequences. So this episode, you can find out what's involved in telling stories about people doing bad things. This is episode 16 of The Tell. Who here has heard the song uh, Pop That Coochie by Two Live Chris? <laughs> you have. Uh, can I... Have, like, I don't feel like enough people have said that. We are... Uh, this is the West Village. Um... <laughs> Um, but it's a really fun song. It goes like, pop that coochie, yeah, pop that coochie. It's a, it was a huge song in the 80s, um, which was when I was born. And when my mother was six months pregnant with me, <laughs> um, it was April, because I was born in June. I'm a Gemini. Um, represent Geminis. Um, I'm a double Gemini Taurus moon. I just told Annapurna that here. Um, I, uh, she, in April, uh, her friend and my future godmother was working in a nefarious place in Virginia uh, called The Boulevard. Um, and The Boulevard was not exactly a strip club, but not exactly not. Um, and it's like, you know, it's more of like... Um, it's more of like a juke joint um, because we, my mother's from Martinsville, Virginia, slash Axton, Virginia, which is like literally a scab on the side of Virginia in between like North Carolina and Virginia. Um, anyway, so my, mo- my mom's uh, best friend, Bebe, uh, Melba, uh, who's also my godmother and the coolest person ever, was like, oh my God, we're having a Pop That Coochie competition at our at the boulevard tonight. Do you want to come and be a guest judge? And my mom was like, fuck no, I don't want to be a judge. I want to be in it. <laughs> um, so my mom, seven months pregnant with me, uh, shows up to the Pop That Coochie, Coochie contest and pulls a full Cardi B and wins. <laughs> my mom wins, uh, and the grand prize is a TV. And it's the TV that I watch for the entirety of my childhood. 
Like literally, it's the TV in my room, blah, blah, blah. But um, the important part of the story, detour, um, the important part of that story is like that was the seed of our deep psychic connection. Um, because there was a girl at this party. My mom's name is Veronica. There was a girl at this party who hated my mom. And we were, I mean, she's from like a, like a rural area in the South, and she had an accent similar to mine. So we were like, damn, bitch, you think you white, don't you? You think you white, you think you're so cool because you're so pretty and you're so skinny. Guess what, bitch, you too skinny. You look like olive oil from Popeye. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, so this girl, Tammy, who hated my mom, was like, what the fuck are you going to do with that TV, bitch? You're so pregnant. And she was like going off on my mom. I was like, this is going to be the TV my son has for the rest of his life, and guess what, my son's going to do great things because of this TV. And now I'm a writer. Um, so... Uh, that was the first step in our evolution as like deeply cosmic people. Um, and uh, I just like that part of the story because it's just great. My mom's also a Libra and Libras and Geminis work so well together. Um, and so anyway, um, I was born to my mother and to a father who I will not name in this story, who is um, a trash human. Um, but my mother didn't know that. But little old me <laughs> did. Uh, because my father saw me when I came out and um, I know I'm wearing blue right now but I was wearing full pink that day and I was like might have a penis but I'm gonna be gay and um, my dad was not into that uh, ever um, when I was like three he like made me take like an intense basketball camp and I was like I want to read um, and I was like a like a complete indoor child I didn't like to venture outdoors um, boys uh, made me feel things so I didn't want to be around them um, and and so my dad got really frustrated by that. My mom, would, my mom would always protect me. She was like, I understand him. I know what he's doing. He's an artist. She knew that. She knew that when I was six years old. Like, that tells you something about our connection. Um, and I always told my mom, like, I don't like daddy. <laughs> like, literally from, like, three on. And she's like, don't. And I was like, he's mean. He's not someone we can trust. I said, I, like, literally, I swear to God, you can ask my mom. I told my mom when I was five years old, my dad was someone she could not trust. And she was like, Jeremy, like, get over it. Like, chill. So anyway, um, the fissures between my father and I started to grow. And my mother saw that this was a problem. She also, I think, was seeing that, like, uh, the only way that I could, um, the only way that I could truly be free of the pains of my father is if she just forced us together. I think she was just like, you know, let, let's just stick them together like glue and see what happens. Um, and what she did not know was that was going to be my true liberation from a terrible childhood with an evil man. Um, because my mom was like, Jeremy, I know you like to be indoors, but your dad's going to start taking you fishing. He's going to take you fishing with his Uncle Chad. Now, my Uncle Chad was uh, also trash. Um, I don't like Chad, but he is named here because he was like, he would give me candy and stuff, and he also bought me a collector's edition Harry Potter book when I was 12, um, which was really nice, and I still have it. It was $75. Um, anyway, so I started going on these, on these trips with my father and Chad, and uh, whenever we're on these trips, there's this woman there named Sharon, who's Chad's girlfriend. Now, Sharon was um, uh, sort of like a, an ogre. She, uh, she had like a constant scowl on her face. It was truly like 
resting evil face. Just like there was like something so vile about her being that it just like manifested itself everywhere. Her weave was like a nest of like it's like literally looked like something that like a a, a pack of like rabbit birds like hid within. It was dark. Um, and she was also like forty. And Chad was the young uncle. Chad was like twenty two. And I was like, this is really weird. Um, and I was nine and thought that was odd. So uh, we're hanging out and about like the third time we go on like one of these fishing trips, I notice Sharon is not interested in a word that Chad says, like ever. She's never interested in it. And yet she's deeply enthralled whenever my dad does anything. So I clocked it. I was like, mm-hmm, I see you, bitch. Um, and I went back to my mom immediately and I was like, hey, mom, I think there's something you need to know. She's like, what? And I was like, I you remember when I told you that dad wasn't trustworthy? Mm, I don't trust Sharon. She was like, what are you talking about? Sharon is Chad's girlfriend. <laughs> Chill out. <laughs> and I was like, okay. But something moved in her spirit. She felt it. <laughs> um, and she, she was like, but keep an eye out. Tell me if you see anything else. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So then I was like, mm, Nancy Drew is my favorite author. <laughs> Or favorite, like, her character. And um, I also love the boxcar children. Anyone else love the boxcar? Okay. Um, so I was like, I can also be a homeless child who is adopted by orphans if I figure this mystery out. Um, so I, I start watching my father and Sharon. And also, um, often on these journeys with my uncle and my uh, dad we, and Sharon, we would stop off at my my grandma's house and we'd be like, hey, Granny, like, what's up? Um, and she was like, call me, um, call me Roxanne. And I was like, okay, Roxanne. Um, and then, and one of the big things that she loved to make me do, she did not like that I was a child. Um, <laughs> I think it really confused her that uh, I liked things like Sailor Moon and uh, uh, Dragon Ball Z and reading books. Um, she thought those were, um, as she said, sissy activities. Um, so she would make me watch like full rated R movies um, in a room by myself. And uh, it, it informed an aesthetic. <laughs> um, my plays are deeply dark. Um, but it also uh, made me very uncomfortable because I was nine and I was watching Malcolm X alone in a room by myself um, as she sat in the kitchen talk- talking to Chad. Um, and it's interesting because um, it was always just Roxanne and Chad and um, my dad and Sharon were nowhere to be found. Um, and one day I clock this. And I was like, fuck, I was on a mission. Um, and so I turned off Malcolm X and I went investigating and I went downstairs. And when I went downstairs, I heard a, mm. I was like, what's that? That's weird. And I was like, let's keep on heading down here. And I walked downstairs and I saw that in Chad's room, pressed against the dresser was Sharon with her legs open and my father inside of her. And because the last trip to Roxanne's house, she made me watch Soul Food, I knew what that meant. I knew exactly what that meant. Um, and my mom kind of looks like Vivica A. Fox, and I was just, or slash like Vanessa Williams. So I was just like, I was like, oh fuck, oh fuck, oh fuck, I know what happens next. She's gonna grab the knife, she's gonna go around the house, and it's gonna be great. So I go to my mom, and I'm like, hey mom, you remember that thing I told you? And she was like, yeah. I was like, mm, this is what I saw. And she was like, red. Um, Libra. Don't forget that. Because Libras are balanced, they listen, they're chill, but then they will see full red. 
Um, and she was like, are you sure about this? And I was like, yes, I'm sure. She looked me, she's like, look me in my eyes. Are you sure about this? And my mom, this is another just sort of detour. My mom had told me very early into my childhood that uh, she could always tell if I was lying. She, would, she was like, I can always tell. I'm your mother. I know when you're lying. And she always could. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm such a good liar now and a terrible boyfriend is the fact that it's because my mom told me all of my tells. So one of the things that I used to do before I trained myself out of it, so I used to, like, touch my glasses right here, um, got rid of those glasses, got contacts. Um, and I also used to... I also used to, like, I would lift my knee and look to the side. It was every time. Um, and she told me that, and I cut that shit out, too. Um, anyway, so just random detour. So my mom was like, okay, I can tell right now you are not lying to me. We immediately got in a car and went to Sharon's house. How my mom knew this woman's address, I will never know. <laughs> we went to Sharon's house, um, and Sharon answers the door um, with this just pure vile, like, and my mom's like, hey, so listen, um, I'm going to make this really quick. Jeremy told me he saw something. And listen, I'm ready to get rid of this man if what he told me is true. Um, he told me that he saw you and my husband having sexual intercourse downstairs in Roxanne's house. And before you answer, I want you to know that I can tell when you're lying. <laughs> and there's nothing I hate more than a liar. I, have to, I tell that to my children all the time. I hate liars. So... You can tell me right now the honest truth, and I will go to my car, and we, I will leave this man. But if you tell me right now that what Jeremy saw was not true, then you're saying that Jeremy's a liar, and then I'm going to have to deal with him, because I don't like liars. And Sharon was like, Jeremy's lying. <laughs> and I was like, clocked. <laughs> Went to the car, got in, shut the door, and I was like, Mom, what did she say? She was like, she called you a liar, baby. Did you lie? I was like, no. She was like, I know you didn't. And she drove off at like 70 miles an hour in like, fuck, I don't I think we had a Chevy Malibu back then. <laughs> anyway, so we get home and um, my mom, she's wandering around the room just like furious. Um, and I go to bed. <laughs> I don't know what happens. Uh, <laughs> the next day my mom's not home. I will find out later that that night my mom took all of my father's clothes and took them to the river and threw them in. There was like a bridge. She threw them over the bridge. Um, my dad also had this truck. One of the activities that I didn't mention because it was boring activity and I really, really hated it. It like actually was triggering for me. So my dad helped me like help like renovate his truck or whatever the fuck, I don't know, I hated it. Um, but he had this truck that he loved and I like helped restore. You said it, you were whispering, thank you. He helped me, I, I was supposed to help him restore the truck. He restored the truck. It was a gross, ugly truck. Um, and my mom went to the, went to the house where they were um, fucking. I think it was Sharon's house, because Sharon is that sloppy of a bitch. Um, mom showed up, waited outside in the bushes, which is a weird detail <laughs> that I heard later. Um, she had a baseball bat, my baseball bat, actually, um, from the year I played baseball, when my dad forced me to play baseball. And... Um, brass knuckles that she got from my godmother, Bebe. And when they came out of the house, she was like, I told you I didn't like liars. And beat the fuck out of my dad's truck and then beat up Sharon and my dad. Um, the reason she was not home uh, was because... Yeah, you guys can clap for that, whatever. <laughs> 
domestic abuse is chill um, when it's a woman to an abusive man. Um, anyway, uh, so my mom uh, wasn't home because she got arrested, obviously. You know, that's what happens. Um, but my mom also, um, like me, loved that TV in my room. And we would watch forensic files and every other we TV show you could. So my mom knew the one thing any woman who scorned can say is that I blacked it out. Blacked it out. I don't even know. I just saw red and blacked out. Um, and um, in Virginia in the 90s, that worked. <laughs> so um, my mom ended up going to a, um, to a mental institution for uh, about six months. Lived with my grandmother. She never told me where she went. She told me she was on a telemarketing like job. And my grandmother would always like, answer the phone and be like, and then like press the little thing and then be like, oh my God, Jeremy, like um, your mom wants to talk to you. And I was, I was like, I'm done. this doesn't feel right. Um, but in that interim, my father also started like dating uh, Sharon seriously. They got together um, and they decided to get married. Um, and I have a little sister that was erased from the story because she, honestly, she does nothing in it. She's really annoying and she's like a daddy's girl and she still doesn't get it. She's an Aries, see, that's like a thing. Anyway, um, so anyway, I have a sister in the story and whenever I'd go to my dad's house because he still had visitation with me um, he would my dad would scowl at me and fucking Sharon would scowl at me and uh, she'd be like you are, you basically a man now why don't you go do some chores and she would make me do chores like I was fucking Cinderella she literally treated me like a like a like a like literally literally like Cinderella it was insane she became an evil stepmother on purpose after she was the other woman like it was like demented and I remember one of these phone calls my mom I was just like mom I hate her so much and she was like I hate her too and I was like I want to kill her and she's like Jeremy don't say that and I heard in her mouth that she was, uh, I heard that she was smiling. I could hear a smile. You know when someone's like, <laughs> don't say that. That was her thing. Um, but it was like less of a laugh. And I made a decision in my mind that day that I would kill Sharon. Um, cut to nine years later. Um, I am now fully away from my father. I don't talk to him. He didn't pay for my college education um, or contribute to it because I decided to take a faggot's profession and go to drama school, which honestly, looking back on it, my dad was right. He should not have paid for that. Um, no one should have. It was a waste of money. If you're listening to this and thinking like, I want to go to drama school, don't. I've done it twice. It's a horrible, horrible waste of money. Um, so my dad, my dad, my dad, my dad. Oh, trash. Nine years later, me killing Sharon. Um, I, was, I was in LA, um, still trying to chase that dream, you know, 22. And um, my birthday's coming up, my, uh, June 2nd. I'm a Gemini, in case you guys forgot. My birthday was coming up, and I was hanging out with my friend at a pool at the Chateau Marmont, and I got a call from my mom. And she was like, hey, Jeremy, um, your sister's really upset right now. I was like, why? She was like, I think you need to come home. I was like, why is that, Mom? And she was like, <coughs> um, Sharon died. I was like, wait, what? She was like, yes, this morning, Sharon died. And I was like, what happened? And she was like, I don't know. She apparently had liver cancer, and she did not know. She'd been living with it for years. And in that moment, I was like, oh, my God. I got Sharon's death for my 22nd birthday. 
And then I just decided that she had had cancer for the nine years since I had cast that spell on the phone with my mom. Um, and I told my mom this, and she was like, you know what, baby? When you have that much evil inside of you, when someone puts it in the world, it just latches right on. So maybe you did do it, baby. Maybe you did. Um, I guess that's a story. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, you can't really do better than ending with the death of your stepmother, I don't think. <laughs> old, my mom called my big sister and me into her bedroom, and she said, I have something to tell you. Uh, she was like, your father, in fact, is a federal fugitive, and you have spent your entire childhood on the run from the FBI. <laughs> and as you can imagine, at nine years old, that's a lot to take on board. Um, and she went on, there was more, uh, so they thought it was all behind them. And actually it wasn't, and Scotland Yard had turned up on our doorstep the week previously, but luckily Dad had found out about this and he had fled the country again. Uh, so my sister asks, well, what did he do? Which is, you know, a reasonable question. Uh, and my mom says, well, that's for him to tell you when he's ready. And, you know, we're kids, we accept this. And we also learn, you know, some secrets aren't ours to tell. Uh, so on this day, you know, we find some other sort of crazy stuff out as well. Uh, I thought my name was Tyler Kane, uh, and actually that was an alias, like real criminals use. Uh, and my dad was actually, you know, I thought he was called Martin Kane, and in fact his name was Benjamin Glazer. <laughs> and just to make it more confusing at this point, me and my sister didn't have the same names either. So my mom was a feminist, or is, and uh, she didn't think that the kids should automatically take their father's name. So my sister was Caitlin Glazer, and I was Tyler Weatherall. And like this name, still, I still find it hard to say, like Weatherall, I sort of, I find it sort of gets caught in my mouth, I guess because I wasn't used to it. Um, and you know, looking back, there were some, maybe some glaring signs that we missed that this was going on in our lives. Like, I was nine years old. I'd lived in 13 houses in five countries, which is sus suspicious, right? Uh, I also didn't know why we'd left California when I was two years old, uh, and I, I really couldn't have told you what my dad actually did for a living. So, you know, my, dad, my parents had divorced when I was four, which was like two years after we went on the run. Uh, I think fugitive life puts quite a strain on a marriage. And <laughs> after that, we'd gone and visited our dad in London, where he was then living. We'd settled in, Europe, in England by this time. And um, me and my dad were really close. You know, he wore this leather jacket and he uh, drove a BMW and he had this like renegade attitude. Uh, and I thought he was about the coolest man on the planet. Uh, he was on my team too, you know, he helped me with my math homework and he and I stayed up late and watched back-to-back -back Simpsons drinking Coca-Cola and chocolate milk and all the other things that I wasn't allowed. Um, 
So I, I couldn't believe he had kept this from me. And I also couldn't believe that he had gone without saying goodbye. So on Saturday that week, my mum takes us for a, like a soggy walk in the British countryside. And we're all complaining and stuff. And when we're like really far from where anyone might possibly overhear this conversation, she says, I don't mean to scare you anymore, but in all probability, Scotland Yard have bugged the house and probably the phones too. And actually, let's be safe, let's say the car as well. So it's best that we don't talk, uh, we don't, we're careful what we say about your dad. I mean, my sister say, well, we don't know what he's done and we don't know where he is. So what are we not meant to be saying here? And uh, at that point, my mom's like, just don't talk about dad at all. So we make this promise that we're not going to tell anyone what's going on in our lives. And she really, like, <laughs> the thing she really was worried about, they would tell our friends at school and then would get thrown out. Um, so we just carry on like everything is normal. Uh, and I go back to class the, ne you know, the next week. And the teacher calls out in class, you know, Tyler Kane, And I'm like, present. And then suddenly I feel like I'm complicit in this thing that's happening around us. <laughs> and, um, you know, at this point we start noticing the surveillance. And, uh, you know, we come out of school and there's these two shady guys, like, loitering at the school gates. Um, or, you know, mom picks us up from trampoline class and we're driving home and we see in the rearview mirror like we're being followed by this dark car. And, you know, frankly, at nine, that's kind of creepy. Uh, but I still didn't tell anybody. A few months go by and um, dad makes contact. And we start this like crazy system of like, clandestine phone calls from secret phone booths at pre-arranged times around the town, all while under surveillance, which is, is crazy. And this continues for a while, and we kind of get used to that. And then during the Christmas holidays, my mum drives us out into the countryside, and she's taking these like circuitous routes uh, in case we're being followed. Um, and she delivers us to a family friend. And then he transports us via car, and then ferry, and then car to Paris, which is where Dad had been hiding all of this time. And it was great to see him. Um, and <laughs> I wrote about it in my diary when I got home, uh, and I was really excited. Then I was like, shit, what if the police find my diary, and then they'll find Dad, and it's all going to be my fault? So I meticulously cross out this entry, and I've, I've still got this diary now, and uh, you can see where I was pressing the pen really hard into the page to make sure that no one could possibly read what I'd written. And you know, during this time, my mom is really anxious, um, and she's, she's worried about the danger that we all might be in. But my dad, he thinks he's got this situation under control. Uh, you know, dad's, <laughs> dad has like, this innate belief that everything is going to turn out okay, um, even in situations like this where it is evidently misplaced. Um, and it's quite contagious, so we kind of were carrying on like this as well. I'm 11 now, and um, I'm on the school bus uh, home uh, with my uh, after swimming class with my best friend, Anna. And She'd noticed that I wasn't going down to see my dad in London anymore, and obviously we didn't tell anyone about the trips to France. So she was like, "Why don't you talk about your? Why don't you go see your dad anymore?" 
And at this point, you know, I'm aware this is when I, this is the point I'm meant to lie, and I'm meant to be like, oh, you know, my dad moved abroad, or uh, he's sick or dead. I don't know. Like we hadn't really been prepped for what we were meant to say, um, but I don't want to. I, I want to tell her, um, and I want her to recognize that I'm sad, and I want her to be sorry for me. Um, and so, you know, with the horrible sympathy mongering uh, of an 11-year-old, I say, my dad did something bad, and he had to go away. And she says, well, what did he do? And, you know, at this point, maybe I would have told her, but I actually didn't know still. Um, so, and I'm also, like, already regretting what I've said. I'm like, nothing, you just promise you're not going to tell anybody. And with the solemnity that 11-year-old girls have, she was like, I promise. <laughs> and, you know, I'd elicited this promise. And um, also, I hadn't really said anything uh, that any would mean anything. But still, in my head, I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh, my God, I told Anna. And Anna's going to tell the other girls at school. And they're going to tell their parents. And then me and my sister are going to get expelled. And the mom and dad are going to go to prison. And it's all going to be my fault. And I don't know how one thing is going to lead to the other. But I broke my promise. And that means that everything I'm terrified is going to happen. So I, I swore I wouldn't tell anybody else as long as nothing bad happened. Two years have gone by now since Dad first left the country, and um, Scotland Yard are kind of fed up that they haven't found him, uh, but they know where we are. So they raid our house, and they arrest my mom, and they take all our stuff, uh, like our photos and stuff as evidence, and they take my diary. So like, I'm obviously a little bit traumatized by what's just happened, but I'm also racking my brains going, all right, what could I have written, and could it be used as evidence against my parents? And I, I'm trying to like, you know, in my mind, I'm like imagining this scene and they're in court and my parents are in the dock and there's these like serious looking lawyers and they're holding my diary. And they're like, September 1995, dear diary. <laughs> but you know, I know, who know, I don't even know if you could use a teenager's diary in court. I actually have no idea. Um, so dad's court. Uh, hiding out in St. Lucia shortly after this. I'm pretty sure my diary was not to blame. Um, and uh, he is transferred to California where he committed the majority of his crimes and sentenced there uh, with, and, I think, 162 counts against him. And uh, my mom has the charges dropped against her, uh, which is great. And, you know, at this point, everything is kind of, you know, it's done, right? So you would think the don't talk about dad rule would be a bit loosened. Um, but at this point, you know, it, it's so ingrained in us to not talk about it that I don't know if we would even have known how to. And, I, you know, mum is also, she worries that we'll be ostracized by the other kids at school if they know we've got a dad in prison, um, which is maybe right because... I grew up in Bath. I don't know if anyone knows Bath in the West Country. Um, but, you know, just think of, like, Jane Austen. Uh, she was, actually lived there, so think very posh British town. And, uh, you know, in my head, the other girls wouldn't possibly have parents in prison. Though I also hadn't realized that everybody has their own secrets. So we go out to visit my dad in California. Um, I tell the other girls that he lives in Hollywood and we're going to go and have, like, sushi dinners on 
like Sunset Boulevard and see celebrities and all that kind of stuff. And I do not tell them about the 28 hours in the prison visiting pen in the shithole town of Lompoc. Um, sorry if anyone's from Lompoc. <laughs> and so we go out to see him and, and dad feels like now is the time to tell us what he has done. And so it transpires that dad was one of the biggest importers of Thai marijuana into the United States in the late 70s and early 80s. And he tells us this, like, you can see this part of him that's, like, quietly, cautiously proud of, like, the audacity of his <laughs> achievements. And um, he's like, you know, one deal netted his organization $35 million, and he's telling us this, us this stuff, I think, hoping that we'd feel the same way. And we get home, uh, and now there's this other thing, right? My dad, the kingpin, and I'm living in this, like, very quaint British city, uh, totally at odds with what that is. And it's now maybe, I don't know, 1997 or something. And in the UK, this book came out, Mr. Nice, which is about uh, Howard Marks, who is like Britain's most notorious pot smuggler. And um, after he published a memoir, became like this, this, he became like a cult hero and everyone was talking about him. And I'll be at school and all my friends are talking about it. And we're all smoking weed by this point. And um, I'd want to say, you know, my dad smuggled way more drugs than Mr. Nice. <laughs> but I didn't say it. And then, like, we're all started listening to Bob Marley, and I want to be like, did you know when Bob Marley first came to New York, it was my dad that sold him weed? <laughs> and I don't say that either. And obviously you can see, like, teenage Tyler wanted to impress her friends with, like, the extraordinary life my dad had led. But equally, it was those decisions he'd made that had led to him being separated from me for the majority of my childhood, and I was still angry at him as well. So I'm 14 now, and um, I make a friend at school, uh, Vicky, and she's not like the other girls. She's got uh, integrity, uh, <laughs> just in short supply. She used to, like, she used to have this string around her neck, um, with a toy alien on it. And I guess like we were both weird and that was okay. Uh, so we're, we're at a party at our house in the basement and we're all smoking bongs and what you do when you're 14. And um, she's like, oh, it's really cool. You get to travel to LA every summer. Uh, and my heart starts beating. I'm like, I'm gonna tell her. I, I want to tell her. I want, I want somebody to know what, what I'm going through. So I say, can you keep a secret? She's like, yes. <laughs> And then I say, uh, my dad was an international pot smuggler. I grew up on the run from the FBI, and you know, in, every summer I see him in prison. And you know, at that moment, it sort of felt good to tell someone. I'd, I'd never told anyone at that point the story. And she was like, wow, that must be really hard. And you know that thing when someone's nice to you, and then you're like, oh god, I shouldn't have said that thing. And it almost makes you want to cry, and then you want to backtrack and make a joke out of it. Um, anyway, the next day I wake up, and I am filled with dread. I just, you know, I feel like something terrible is going to happen. And I don't know what that thing is, but it's still there with me. And I wish I could take it back. And, you know, at this point, 14, 15, 16, uh, I don't have blonde hair, I don't have boobs at all, and I don't know how to impress the boys, but I do know how to backroll a joint, which actually goes quite far <laughs> as a teenager. So I get my first serious boyfriend. <laughs> At some point, I find myself telling him the story, and he's like, wow, 
That's so cool. Your dad was a pot smuggler. And yeah, that wasn't really what I was looking for either. And it's difficult because, you know, what am I expecting here? Um, you tell someone the story and they either go, they, they sympathize and that's hard, or they, they think it's cool and, you know, fine, but that's also kind of wrong. And then, you know, or they think dad's a terrible person and then I have to defend dad and say, no, he was a really good dad too. Um, and all these things, and I don't know what I'm looking for uh, from telling people, but yeah, I'm, I'm compelled to do it. So dad gets out of prison, I'm 19, 18, 19, and... Um, I go to university and uh, I end up taking ecstasy with a bunch of new friends, which is a horrible idea if you have secrets to keep. Um, and then suddenly I want to tell them everything about myself, <laughs> which I do. Um, and then I wake up the next morning and I am so ashamed. And the way I deal with it, I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm never going to see any of them ever again. <laughs> and I don't, uh, apart from... <laughs> A few years later, there's one guy I bump into a party, and he's like, oh, you're that girl that got really smashed and disappeared with the face of the planet. <laughs> and he didn't mention the drug smuggling dad, which is, which is cool. Um, uh, and at this point, you know, really nothing can go wrong by telling people it could be a great dinner party story, but I just treat it like a secret, and I may as well still be Tyler Kane at that point. And um, my dad decides... He's going to write, he's going to, he wants to sell a story. He wants to get a ghostwriter and sell his uh, story, uh, which, you know, is another get-rich-quick scheme, a bite misguided, but at least this one is legal. So we, we think that's fine, we'll support him. Uh, and I was working as a journalist at that point, and I didn't want somebody else to tell our story, so I was like, I'll write it. And I go out and spend some time in uh, L.A. living with him and interviewing him. And... Uh, you know, at this point, I'm working on it for a couple of years, and people sometimes ask, what are you writing? And I lie. I say, I met this family who spent a decade on the run from the FBI. Can you believe it? <laughs> Crazy story. And then I get a literary agent, and she convinces me to rewrite it as a memoir. And I do. And then we sell it to a publishing house. And you'd think I'd be happy, like, this has been seven years in the works, but I cycle home that day, I remember it was raining, it was December, and miserable, and I'm weeping, being, what have I done? I can't write this book. I still didn't tell my friends this story, and I'm meant to publish a book about it? Terrible idea. Um, and at some point, in the midst of this writing, I get so paranoid, I'm like, the FBI are going to reopen the case against my mom because everybody else went to jail, so that kind of means that they're fine, but my mum never did. So in my head, it's like, I'm going to publish this book, and Scotland Yard are going to turn up on her doorstep, and she's going to go to jail, and I'll, I'll never forgive myself. So I call my dad, and I'm like, Dad, I'm in hysterics, I'm like crying, and I'm a total mess. Like, dad, you have to talk to a lawyer and make sure that no one can go to jail because of something I write. And Dad's like, everything is going to be fine. <laughs> You would say that, wouldn't you? That's what got us all in this mess in the first place. Um, and he's wrong, actually. You know, you, you can actually go to prison because it's something that someone writes in a memoir. Uh, but, <laughs> but I published the book anyway. Um, and I'd love to tell you that now it's out there in the world and it's being read, you know, that, and no one's got to prison yet. Please, God, no one go to prison. Uh, that I feel like I'm over it. Uh, but it doesn't really work that way.
And yet here I am telling you all this story. And it's hard really to understand why uh, I do it, apart from, you know, as long as I harbor this secret, then the past is still present again. It still has power over me. And if I tell it myself, then I get to define how my story ends. So excuse me now while I quietly go away and panic. I know she's trouble. Oh, I'm headed for lots of trouble. Lots of trouble, lots. Too bad I can't leave her. Exactly what I'd say and say I even dream about her Her smile, her face is so clear when she's not here
heard a live performance from Dita Peled, and before that, you heard stories from Jeremy O'Harris and Tyler Weatherall. And Beneath Me playing right now is one of our many versions of the Tell theme song, Written by a Fool. Uh, this one's going to have Zana singing on it in a little while, um, but the musicians on this one are Matt Botter on horns, John Coward on keyboard, Chris Egan on drums, me on guitar, <laughs> and Ian Underwood on bass. Um, the Tell Band. <laughs> and uh, um, this is all produced by Gabriel Galvin at his studio, Four Foot Studios in Brooklyn, um, where we do the podcast. So if you'd like to come see The Tell uh, in person, the live show, you can find out when one is happening at thetellstories.com. Otherwise, this was episode 16 of The Tell. It's written by a f-